Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Today, I'm talking with a very cool, very award-winning environmental psychologist who just became an assistant professor at the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at the U.S. Air Force Academy, Dr. Katie Pedito. Katie, I am so excited to have you on today. I remember the first time that I watched you speak at Healthcare Design and sharing your research on spaces for young adults with cancer. And seriously, I was just blown away by your passion and the conviction of your purpose and how beautifully you articulated the interwoven nature between human stories and environmental design. And I can't wait to explore today with you. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be chatting with you. Um, what a kind introduction. Um, <laughs> I, I hope I live up to this, right? Oh, You'll, you will. Don't you worry. Um, so I was hoping that you could kick it off by saying a few words about yourself and maybe a little bit about what drives your passion um, and the areas that you focus on. And then we'll hop into some of the detailed questions. Sure. Um, so I am an environmental psychologist. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm currently an assistant professor at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado. Before I moved out here, um, just a few months ago, I was based out of the Department of Design and Environmental Analysis at Cornell. Um, and I, when I say environmental psychologist, I think most people think of sustainability or pro-environmental behavior. And that's mm. definitely part of our field. But I primarily focus on the role of the built environment and specifically how spaces affect our psychological health and our well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of got into this in a a roundabout way. Um, My background is in psychology. I don't have any design experience um, (laughs) at all. So I I feel like I'm kind of an interloper every once in a while. I can't draw, I can't sketch, um, but I can bring a psychological perspective to the way that we design spaces. And I first really noticed how big of a problem this was in 2016. I was part of a group of people through the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults, um, I think now called the Ullman Foundation. And we ran across the country for 49 days from- I cannot believe that. I know. I can't either. I tell this story and it feels like a, a dream <laughs> run for Polly. <laughs> um, so we, we did that, apparently, um, from San Francisco to Baltimore. And it was a big fundraiser for the Ullman Cancer Fund. And along the way, we stopped at several different healthcare facilities treating adolescents and young adults with cancer. Mm-hmm. But all of these facilities were pediatric uh, facilities, mm-hmm. so primarily mm-hmm. for kids. And it mm-hmm. just struck me as so odd. And I didn't really realize at the time that people actually made a career out of looking at things like this um, (laughs) until I was at Cornell and I realized that there are many people who are really interested in how (laughs) spaces affect our health. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Yeah, so that is a great segue into, like, I would love to explore sort of some of your research specifically around your dissertation, how you, you know, you just sort of 
kicked off and, and set up the problem, which is that, you know, when you look at spaces for, um, for adolescents and young adults with cancer, that they're looking around and saying like, well, I'm, you know, they're, they're not quite full grown adults, but they're definitely not, you know, small children. And they're, in a time of their lives that we all understand that social connection and the sense of identifying who you are and how you fit in the world becomes extremely important. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the research you did, maybe just some of the super high level findings, and then I have some specific questions I'd love to dig into around that. Cool. I love talking about my dissertation. Anyone who has ever gotten a PhD feels totally blessed when someone says, let's talk about your dissertation because that's so <laughs> rare. <laughs> so cool uh, though. I mean, it, you, you're a nerd if you think that's cool, but I love it. <laughs> um, so yes. I will, I will eagerly tell you about it. Um, I think most importantly, we know that social needs change throughout our lifespan. As we grow up, we need different things. Uh, when we're infants, we we're basically social for the sake of survival. We need to be around our mom or our caregiver. Otherwise, we will die. Uh, but in childhood, we start to develop friendships um, based on shared hobbies or beliefs. And that continues as we grow up um, into adolescence and young adulthood. But that at that point, we've become independent and our peers are actually more influential than our family members about a lot of different things. Um, intimate relationships yeah. also become really important to our social health as mm -hmm. young people. Um, so I was really interested in how we merge developmental psychology and the design of these environments, given that there are so many different changing needs across the lifespan. How might we design yes. a universal place? Is it possible that we could design a universal space for social needs across the lifespan? Um, and adding another kind of wrench in that problem is that even though those developmental trends are pretty similar when you look across cultures, um, yeah. across different environments, disease and other health challenges totally interrupt that trajectory. Um, right. With a cancer diagnosis in particular, a college student, for example, is no longer going to be as independent. They might have to return to relying on their parents as their primary source of social support. And so as designers of health spaces, we need to be acutely aware of how social needs change as soon as we enter a health facility. And that's what was happening with these young people. Oh, just taking a minute to recognize the importance of what you just said. I think we oftentimes look at hospitals um, and related spaces as like, okay, this, this is a place where you get cared for your ex, right? Like your broken thing or whatever disease you have, your heart condition. But the truth is, is that like going through something like that is, is traumatic and oftentimes leads to weeks, months, years of needing to rely on other people for help. And that like that social piece that you just mentioned is critical. But like, I just feel like we don't talk about it. we do sometimes talk about like family centered care and but it's like I don't know the way you're talking about it I think is really unique and helpful so for yeah. sure I think one of the one of the tactics that I use when I present to other people especially people that aren't totally familiar with this challenge is asking people to remember 
what their life was like when they were in college. Maybe you were a senior in college and you were about to go out and live your life and start your first job. And you were, you know, maybe partying it up with your best friends in college. And then all of a sudden you're kind of tired, kind of weak, and you find out that you have cancer. Not, not only are you being placed in a totally different environment by mm. having to move to this health facility for potentially pretty long-term care, depending on your diagnosis, but all of a sudden, all of that independence you had, the identities that you were trying on, the career achievements that you were looking forward to, all of that normal developmental stuff is totally disrupted. Yeah. Mm. So um, you were talking about designing of these spaces. So tell us about like, all right, what type of research did you do? Um, how did you go about it? And then what, what did you find? Sure. So I took a three-part approach to this. The first thing I did was interview um, a number of adolescents and young adults that had been through a cancer diagnosis. It was kind of clear to me, mm -hmm. having visited a number of these different facilities, that clearly no one had talked to young people before they designed them. And I was wondering where this like user design gap was happening. And clearly no one had talked to young people about it because they had yeah. so many opinions, <laughs> which was awesome. It was a great place to start instead of just imagining in my mind what was wrong with these spaces. Because at the time I was a young adult, so I could see at least from my own perspective, like, well, I probably wouldn't go into this dark room by myself and wait for people to talk to me. <laughs> um, but it was really important to hear from other people who had actually been through the experience. After that, um, I conducted a survey of over 100 adolescents and young adults that had been through cancer across the country. So they'd been at probably 20 or 30 different facilities um, and had been dealing with cancer at different ages, but at least through ages 18 to 39, which is a crazy age range. We can talk about that later if we need to. <laughs> but that's what we meant by adolescent and young adult. And what I found in that survey was a really contradictory finding that, that kind of threw me for a loop when I first saw it. So I was really surprised to find that young people were less interested in social interaction with other patients. And instead they were way more interested in things like autonomy and independence um, and privacy. And here I was thinking that the solution to all of this was making sure that patients could interact with other patients. That was what we'd been hypothesizing that if you improve social interaction with peers, then your health is better. And so here was a group of young people straight from their mouths saying, no, we don't really wanna do that. <laughs> And yet, later on in the survey, I asked a really simple question. I just said, did you have as much social interaction with other patients as you mm -hmm. wanted? And 88% mm. of people in the survey said no. So I was sitting there trying to figure out what was going on in that patients clearly weren't prioritizing social interaction with other patients, yeah. and yet they really wanted it. So yeah. what does that mean for designers, right? And after some thought and some nights wondering if my dissertation was wrong, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, at the heart of it, I think, is balancing our desired social interaction 
with our achieved social interaction. That's actually the yes. definition of privacy that we use in environmental yes. psychology. So it's not just being alone. It's making sure that you have the energy to be able to interact with people. When we don't provide personal private spaces to mm -hmm. recharge, we can't mm -hmm. expect individuals to have energy to interact in public. That's yeah. not just true with young people with cancer. That's true for everybody. Yeah, you can kind of think of it on a on a fulcrum, like almost right. like a seesaw, where in the yeah. middle is this like really fine line you're trying to walk of making sure that you have enough social interaction, but not too much. And if it tips mm -hmm. one way, you get really lonely. And if it tips the other way, you get so overstimulated that it's wow. worse on that end of the spectrum as well. But that's lonely. I mean, that's lonely too, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that a lot of times social isolation and loneliness get coupled together. But the truth is, is that they are different. And that's why you can be lonely in a crowded room or lonely on a, you know, crowded unit, but not isolated. So then we have a need and we're all on the spectrum of, of this need, introvert, extrovert, whatever. But, but around like sort of, yeah, how do we recharge and how do we maintain our sense of self so that then we can go and interact with the world? And like, yeah, what do you think that means for design? I think that's where choice and control uh, really come into play. I think especially when we're talking about young adults specifically, it comes down to making it their choice. So shared spaces that allow for these informal interactions, if I had to pick the most important element to social design, that's what it would be. Um, like young people aren't going to just voluntarily do group activities that you prescribe to them. And yet, if you look at what child life specialists are doing, who are yeah. incredible, amazing, such well-meaning people, but in interviews with those people, they're saying young people aren't coming to do what we're we're planning for them. And I think that's yeah. because that's it doesn't make sense. If you're feeling unwell, if you've gained weight from treatment, if you're worried about hair loss, mm -hmm. you're like any other teenager. You're not going to come to a, a bake off. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes we think that we need to like create some sort of distraction and fantastical thing. And we forget about the power of just like literally showing up to listen to one another. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that brings up a good point that I might not have otherwise talked about. And that's the idea that young people clearly desire some kind of social support therapy. Um, and it's actually relatively popular among young survivors of cancer, but they don't mm -hmm. find out overwhelmingly, they don't find out about those opportunities or pursue those opportunities while they're in treatment. And I think that's wow. because there's just so much of an emphasis on like, we're going to do all of this for you and try to distract you from what's going on. Yeah. Um, and there, there might be more of a value to something like what you just described. Yeah. I mean, I think that the spaces for that can be very simple, but I think that it needs to have some sense of enclosure of like, now you get to move into this space and this is sacred space for this time being, and then you can move out of it. I completely agree that there is a way that the environment would support something like that in the same way that you would go to a yoga studio or to church, that you have this designated place for release, for connection, for spirituality, yes. whatever it is. 
that mm. is the space and you feel the sense of connection as soon as you enter it. But that's not what happens in hospitals, right? We have a, a chapel maybe, but that's not in the patient area. Yeah. I know a little bit of why you chose the, that age range, but I'm sure other people are wondering. So do you want to say a few words about it? Oh, sure. In this run across the country, um, I had become connected with the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults because um, I had come from a long line of BRCA mutations in my aunt, Mm -hmm. her aunt, um, and probably suspect her aunt before that. And so I'd connected with these folks thinking about having to think about what would it mean for me to have cancer? What would it mean for me to have this mutation? And luckily I was negative. So I didn't have Mm -hmm. to face the reality of that, but it does put your mortality in perspective for a moment. I think that's something Mm -hmm. not to totally derail, but I think that's something that we're all being called on to deal with right now in the midst of a pandemic. What does it mean to feel supported when your mortality is in question? Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the, um, I guess on the other side of it, having now done this research with adolescents and young adults, I will Mm -hmm. never not work with them because what an amazing group of young people. Young people love to tell you what's wrong. They love to tell you how (laughs) they would make it better. (laughs) They love to tell you when they're annoyed or happy and, and they really want to make whatever they've experienced better for the next person that comes along, whether that's someone with cancer, whether that's someone at a college health facility, there's really a sense of shared purpose among young people Mm -hmm. that I think is just so cool. You don't get that when you work with infants. Um, So I I just love the AYAs. Um, I think you started to share some of your major findings. I think the part that you emphasize around control, privacy, and choice is super important. I also thought that one of the things that I I remember your research sort of talking about was starting to look at the role of kitchen spaces or the importance of breaking bread as being sort of a unifier and equalizer of people. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? So we left off kind of talking about the importance of informal interactions and things that aren't prescribed and maybe spaces that support those types of informal interactions. Um, It's not going to be a specific video game room or a pool table room, uh, because even if you're not saying, hey, come here at this time, it's still a really prescribed activity. Um, So what patients will do and what they've reported is just running into other people in the hallways or at the kitchen tables in their facility. Um, So I think recognizing the importance of those informal spaces as being really crucial to first time interaction is exactly Mm -hmm. that's spot on. Um, And we've we've seen this before. So Charles Jenks, who I'm sure you are familiar with. um, So he's a a well-known architectural theorist. He's a writer. Um, His wife, Maggie, was sick with cancer and he was interested in designing a space for cancer support. It wasn't a treatment center. It was just a place to come and receive support um, for individuals and family members with a cancer diagnosis. And these places ended up being designed by a number of well-known architects across the UK. But one thing that they all had in common that Charles really 
emphasized was this idea of a hearth um, mm-hmm. around which people could cook and eat and relax. Um, he had really specific design guidelines for it, actually, that it was triangle shaped, that there was a skylight above it, and that it really became the central area in this facility. So you didn't have to seek someone out. You just knew where they would be. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And and the those are Maggie centers for anyone. Yeah, yep, named after his them. wife. Yeah, I think the one of the things that we've talked about um, is the Fort Worth AYA facility. And I'm going to bring that up now because I think it, that is also a great example of informal space and this spectrum of public to private. Um, so I'll, I will describe out loud um, in very rudimentary terms. Remember that I am not an architect. <laughs> um, Probably makes you better at describing space. I will describe <laughs> um, So each patient room, there's only eight or 10 patient rooms in this facility, but they all open onto a large communal space. And this is a mm-hmm. an unprescribed space. Um, so there's options yeah. to eat. There's options to plug in your laptop. Um, just sit on a couch. You could play video games. You could play air hockey, or you could literally just sit there and know that when you open your door, you might find someone that you could just informally interact with. Um, But the most important part of this facility is that it's really easy for patients to just go back to their private rooms or the other Mm -hmm. like semi-private spaces within the facility when they need more privacy. And so there's a a wonderful opportunity to balance your achieved and desired social interaction. Right, like those scales of interaction where you're like able to to choose how much exposure you want and and how much engagement you're feeling like. I love that. Yeah, it's a great example. So, you know, one one of the things that I was curious about is I've heard a lot about Maslow's hierarchy. You you are now teaching Psych 101, so I'm sure you're talking about Maslow and sort of how we talk about the the basic need for safety and for food and you know as you move up the hierarchy you talk about sort of love and belonging. And I've heard some social health experts, scientists in the field sort of say that they think Maslow got it wrong. They think that, you know, this need for love and belonging is a more foundational need. And I would just be super curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. This is Maslow's hierarchy is somewhat of a thorn in my side, especially now that I'm going <laughs> to have to teach it as um, as law. <laughs> so I am more than happy to critique it. Um, and I think I, I have kind of two avenues from which I critique this particular issue. Um, And actually in 2010, a group of researchers redefined the hierarchy of needs, but even then food and safety was still at the bottom and belonging was much higher up. Um, So I think it's a twofold problem. Okay. One, there is a substantial amount of research that links belonging to our health. So without social support, we can't achieve our basic physiological needs. We can't get food. We evolved as group-oriented people because we need a group of people to achieve those basic physiological needs. You could make an argument that this differs between individualistic and communistic cultures, but I think at the root of it, without having people around you 
that you can depend on, not just for resources, but also for love and warmth, Mm -hmm. you can't achieve health and safety. Um, Yes. And it's, it's totally bizarre to me because I think when we teach Maslow's hierarchy, we say things like, okay, now that we have food and safety, we need a sense of belonging because that makes us feel important. And then we can rise to self-actualization. But man, boiling belonging down to just like self-esteem is not, that doesn't accurately reflect evolution even. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So how do we provide for something that you've talked about in the past? Um, You introduced me to the term spatial justice. And I would love for you to explain sort of what this term means and how do we live it and why is it important to you? Yeah. Awesome. I love talking about this. Um, So uh, this was actually a term that was coined by Edward Soja. He was an urban theorist um, and a political geographer. So he was actually a little bit more interested in cities and our Mm -hmm. access to cities. But his argument was that the equitable distribution of our resources and our services and our infrastructure and having access to those things is a fundamental human right. Um, Mm -hmm. That as citizens of a place, we should all have equitable access to that place and the things that it can offer us. And if we think about that in a city, I think it's really easy to conceptualize things like transportation, lack of mobility, um, especially in, in urban areas where maybe public transportation doesn't reach the most impoverished areas or allow them access to the amenities of the city. I think there's a really meaningful trajectory transition maybe between how we look at spatial justice in urban areas and how we look at spatial justice in at a smaller scale. How do we provide equitable access to the things that fulfill our social needs in a hospital? For example, I think it dovetails with my research nicely in thinking about why adolescents and young adults as a subset of the population, why don't they have the same access to social care, to Mm -hmm. clinical trials, um, to the Mm -hmm. other amenities that many individuals with cancer now have access to? So even though it's not urban transportation, it's still a spatial Mm -hmm. justice issue to think about the populations that have been otherwise invisible in the design process and how we champion for them. Yes. And I I think that, you know, one of the things I remember you talking with me about was service, like we're designing in service of these people. But the question is, like, are we designing with them or as their benevolent overlords? Um, And how can we make sure that I I know that there are so many design constraints, but how can we make sure that we are having their input and their needs and their wants as a part of whatever we're designing from city design all the way to, you know, design of a hospital unit or of a hospital space, you know? Absolutely. I think as we, especially right now, this is a a really pertinent conversation, how we think about entrenched injustice and how we are in in so many different ways going to make reparations for the systems of institutionalization that just permeate the way we've designed things 
one of the tools that we have, not just as designers, but also as psychologists and researchers, one of the mm-hmm. tools we have is actually giving these invisible populations a voice in the design process. That in and of itself is a tool to spatial justice. Um, it's not mm-hmm. just that we finally figured out how to design a more equitable equitable space, but that we actually engaged that population in the decision-making and took it seriously. Yes. I'm like, the process is part of the product. Like there's not just a one size fits all. I had a great conversation with a a colleague, Sheba Ross yesterday, actually. And we were talking about, talking about one size fits all is, is basically insulting because what that means is that it fits no one well. Um, And it means that if you look around at that, you know, space that's supposed to work so well for you and it doesn't, then does that impact your feelings of belonging and your feelings of mattering in this place? Absolutely. If you if you look around and cannot picture yourself in that space, it's clear that it was not designed with you in mind. And I think that's exactly what many of these young people reported as soon as they walked into a pediatric facility saying, okay, well, there's there's stuffed animals and there's balloons and there's <laughs> like seashell wallpaper. This is clearly yeah. not a space that I'm supposed to be in and no one thought yeah. that I would be here. Mm. Mm. Okay. The last thing that I would love to hear is when you think about how we design what what is it that you wish more people considered about designing spaces or things that you think that people miss that you, that you wish that we would consider? I think I'm a little bit biased as an environmental psychologist that often feels like an interloper in design conversations. <laughs> um, I think at the, the largest level, I wish people would just consider psychology more. What is the relationship between yeah. human behavior and design and are we consulting people who are experts in the human behavior that we're trying to cultivate? So that's my yeah. big, um, I guess I have to make sure that I am promoting environmental psychology. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, but I think at the, at maybe the smaller level, it's exactly what we were just talking about. I wish more people considered the voice of the people that they are designing for. Why is it that we are still having conversations about user design discrepancies? We wouldn't Mm -hmm. be having those conversations anymore if the users were meaningfully involved in the design process. And that doesn't just mean we're gonna get a focus group together. (laughs) That means Mm -hmm. we are going to build a mock-up. We are going to create a space in virtual reality And even more importantly, we are going to actually find the people that are using that space. And when we talk about spaces for people who are less privileged, um, people who have been previously invisible in those spaces, designers have to do the work to find those people and not accept, you know, a stand in or a proxy for those users. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. I, I, I wonder whether our new sort of very virtual world will help us to think about ways to engage users that allow them more flexibility. I think, you know, some of the people that you're just talking about, it's not easy for them to hop in a car that they don't have and drive down to wherever you are and pay for parking, right? Um, take off work or, or you know, leave the, leave the kids. 
And so how can we sort of take some of this virtually to them? Yeah, I'll even um, make a, a quick plug for the the third part of my dissertation was an online participatory design workshop um, and trying to figure out ways to access people without geographic restrictions. Um, certainly there are still restrictions in terms of having internet access, um, but I think we're getting closer and closer to finding creative ways to engage people in design workshops that don't necessarily have to be in person. And if there's any kind of bright spot coming out of this pandemic, it's that we have found really creative ways to work virtually. God, yes. If people want to read your dissertation, like where would the, where would somebody find what you just talked about? Like what are, are there takeaways that people can sort of look into? Yes, absolutely. Um, so if you want the um, layperson's version, which I kind of recommend. <laughs> um, if you want the layperson's version, um, I can direct you to my website, www.katiepedito.com, where I have some takeaways and even some descriptions and screenshots of the methods that I used. If you are awesome. like, yes, I am hooked on environmental psychology. I want to know more. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, quit and, you. Yeah, quit. <laughs> um, my one of the papers from my dissertation is published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, so you can find it there. I know I'm excited about it. <laughs> nerd alert! Nerd alert! I know. And if you want to read the whole thing, if you really want to get to like like wizard Come level, on. um, yes. it's published online. <laughs> awesome! Awesome! That is awesome. Ah. Uh. Katie, it is so much fun to talk to you, and I so appreciate you sharing your time and your stories, and just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me share the stories of people who haven't otherwise had a voice. I feel very privileged to be the voice for some young people who haven't been able to talk about their environments. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.